It was a real honor to have well-respected theologian Fred Sanders in from Biola University in California for the show. We talked about important issues of the Trinity, including the hermeneutical matters of the Trinity in the Old Testament, and Fred's excellent book, The Triune God. All right. Well, welcome, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Where'd you go to school? Um, Murray State University. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah undergrad. Okay. I was an Great. art major, drawing and printmaking. Were you really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Do you yeah. do much art now? Uh, no. No. It's um, making art is not relaxing for me at all, so it doesn't make a good hobby. <laughs> you get stressed out. I, well, it's it? just it's like it's work. It's, it's work. Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was your media? I mean, drawing was your main drawing. Uh huh. I made a lot of ink drawings with a brush. Okay. Uh, on large sheets of paper. Okay. Yeah, and some prints too. Uh, large linoleum prints. Okay. Yeah. I was never a great draftsman, uh, you know, in a room full of people who can draw. I can't draw that well. Right, right, okay. Um, but I had a great work ethic and a good sense of design, so produced a lot of big work. Okay. So you went to seminary at Asbury, as I think I read. Is that right? Yeah, I got an MDiv at Asbury Theological Seminary. Okay. Crammed an MDiv into five years. I did it in six, I Yeah, understand. there you go. And that was a good experience? It was a good experience, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew already that I didn't want to be ordained or you know, do full-time um, pastoral ministry. So I was I was really using the MDiv to get a, you know, a 90-unit yeah. master's degree. Yeah, totally. Covering all the fields of theology, getting right. a little exposure to everything. But it was very good, yeah. So by the time you went to seminary, you thought you'd want to go on to further study? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what had happened? Yeah. How did you get from art school to... Like, did you experience a conversion or something <laughs> else that happened in there? Or? No, my conversion was in high school, and um, I... I, well, I just didn't know there was theology. Right. So when I was looking around for a college thing, I really wanted to learn how to draw, make some art. Um, and the only people I knew who taught the Bible were pastors. Okay. And I knew enough about myself at the time that I knew I didn't want to be a, a pastor. Right. So once I found out there was theology, once that began to dawn on yeah, me, yeah. partly through, did some work with the Campus Crusade and, okay. and uh, just networked a little bit more. And I found out, oh, you could be... It's kind of like it's like being a professor, yeah, yeah. But you're teaching the Bible and Christian doctrine. I guess it, we would want to say it is being a professor. It is. Turns out it is. But this this wasn't on my. I'm just kind of like a professor. Uh, you are yeah, too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was one uh, nice turning point. I was in an art history class, uh, medieval art, and we studied the um, mosaics in Ravenna, Italy. Oh, totally. Uh, kind I've of been just, there. Period of Justinian. My yeah. My wife's a mosaic artist. I don't yeah. know if you know that. Oh, we, I did not know we, that. She won an yeah. award, and we spent. A couple of weeks in Ravenna oh. with her taking a master class. The and dream, so I just yeah. Walked the around all those basilica. And, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Guys. Well, <laughs> my my big save up our money and take a trip after my PhD trip for me was Ravenna. Yeah. Yeah. Did we you go? To, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah it's yeah. amazing. What I, what I love about it is that you've got these broke era cathedrals. I mean, older, but they're always remodeled in the broke era. Right next to all these basilicas, you can see like this, yeah. I always felt like it was like Eastern and Western Christianity to some degree, yeah. right next to each other. You know? And and so it was richly resourced because it was kind of going to be the capital, but right, then it right. didn't get invaded because yep. it turned out not to be the capital. Right. So everything's beautifully preserved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what caught my eye in a medieval art history class as an undergrad was that there are two um, baptistries about a mile apart and they have the same iconography and yep. decoration in the ceiling, but they have two different theologies. One's the Arian Baptistry and one's yep. the Orthodox yep. Baptistry. Yep. Yep. And just as an undergrad college student studying art, I thought, how, 
how could you be getting baptized and look up and see this image of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan by John? Yep. yep. And have Orthodox Christology and know that this is the Son of God incarnate. But a mile down the road, <laughs> there's somebody getting baptized with basically a Jehovah's Witness theology, thinking this is a great creature. How can the same iconography feed both theologies? Right, right. So I, I spent about a hundred hours reading fourth century Trinitarian wow. theology. Yeah. Finally, you know, knocked out a little 18-page paper or something at the end. Um, but the experience was, I thought, is there any way I could just keep reading theology yeah, yeah. for a living? <clears throat> so I never answered the question, by the way. I have no idea. <laughs> Turns out there is no answer. No, you're, a, you're living, you're reading and writing theology as a living? That's yeah. good. Yeah. No, no, I mean, <laughs> oh, okay. no, I never answered the question, how can two different theologies right. support the same iconography? Right. Um, Years later, I read a German dissertation on the subject, and that guy didn't have the answer either. Okay. So right. It turns out it's one of those great questions that... The Germans have, have an answer? Doesn't have a there great answer. There is no answer, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so that's very interesting. Have you done much with sacred art and the history of art, like Robin, Robin Jensen? Yeah, I love okay. Robin Jensen. Yeah. yeah, okay, me too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's been an intersection of my two worlds as well. Yeah. yeah. So. And the history of the iconography of the Trinity is pretty fascinating. Oh, yeah, I haven't read Especially that. because... Because you can't do it right, and that makes yeah. it all interesting. Right. Like you a know, hand coming out of the cloud. <laughs> yep. There's one of those yep. in Ravenna, I think. Is three men yeah. seated on a throne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. The baptism itself is a, a, a kind of Trinity icon. Yeah. What really struck me about the difference between those um, basilica and the churches there was that, of course, in the Baroque era, Western sort of style churches, you have a crucified Christ, mm -hmm. where it seemed like in all the basilica, there, it's a it's a reigning and blessing risen oh. Christ, and and I've yeah. often thought that really reflects some differences, doesn't it? And you know better than I would on the history of theology, but some differences between the East and the West, generally speaking, yeah. the emphasis on Christ as this risen blessing one, as opposed to focusing on his suffering and death. Is right. That, is that yeah. a fair reading of those two distinctions? Um, yeah. It's, within it's, Ravenna? Yep. It's a generalization, but yeah, I think I think you can see that. Mm -hmm. Like at yeah. De Classe, down in that in that basilica, the main image up in the in the um, you know circular dome is Christ and all the animals and yeah. he's blessing everyone. Yeah. It's a very beautiful picture. I find it very life giving. Yeah. Well, even in crucifixions, you can have the, the body of Christ can be shown either sort of T shaped or S shaped. You know, the T shaped is the ruling Lord kind of presiding over something from yeah. the throne of the cross. And the S shape is more the Christ of the broken body. Okay, uh, I, I don't know that I knew that distinction yeah. clearly. Okay. Yeah, just kind of. I mean, it's right, T yeah, and S is an exaggeration, yeah, yeah. but you yeah, can yeah, see yeah. it in so the shape. Let's say that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. All right. Well, one question you may know. I always ask my guests is, what was your first car? <laughs> yeah, first car I drove was very interesting. It was a Dodge Cab over. I don't even know what that means. It's a snub-nosed pickup truck. Okay. The engine is between the passenger seat and the driver's seat okay. in a big doghouse. Like, like a like a van, like some versions of a van, like a real snub-nosed kind of... Yeah, mm -hmm. right. yeah, where your foot is on right. the back of the uh, headlight. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the, the battery, the, the motor was actually under a big doghouse manifold that you latched down. Well, let's get some coffee. All right. Hey Siri, give me a number between 19 and 243. A random number between 19 and 243 is 
Okay. Right. So as you may have seen, oh, I like yeah. to pull out a person's book okay. and have them read just a paragraph, I guess 156 it said, I think. Okay. And then we'll talk more generally about it. And, I'll, and I will say at the beginning, I, first of all, this is Raphael's borrowed book, so there's some markings in there. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I He refuted me here. Yeah, exactly. Could, what the heck? <laughs> I, I didn't know he swore so much. Um, I didn't have as much time with this book due to moving uh-huh. several kids this weekend, etc. But I, I read through all of it and was able to spend some time in parts of it more than others. Absolutely wonderful book. Oh, thank I mean, you. Really, you wonder what I was going to say there. <laughs> I was suspense. I cannot yeah. believe how crappy this is. <laughs> no, I mean, so disappointed. And, and every, <laughs> exactly, Mike and Scott. What the heck were they thinking? No, I mean, I had heard that it was really good, and I think we had just barely met a couple times, but I'd heard good things. I didn't know what you were doing, and I just was amazed at how many important and interesting moves you made that were just, so just overall, it was really good. In fact, I wrote Mike and Scott today and said, wow, I was blown away by this. So anyways, 156, Yeah. Um, tell us tell us what you got. Well, it's got a heading right at the top. Okay, so good. Uh, here, this is a section where I talk about um, the way Trinitarianism is in Scripture, and so okay. I take up this term agraphon, okay. unwritten. All right, and I, and I got it from Gregory Nazianzus, who talks about this in his five theological orations, um, about how the the meaning of Scripture is Scripture. You know that he says, why do you, why must you be so dreadfully servile to the letter? Um, um, supposing you mention twice five or twice seven, and I infer from your words ten or fourteen, would you allege that I was talking rubbish? How can I be? I'm saying what you said. So this this comes up in several ways with the doctrine of the Trinity, where the of course the word Trinity isn't in Scripture, right. and a lot of the conceptual moves um, that go into the classic doctrine of the Trinity are not in Scripture right. in that form. Um, but I think what the classic tradition has been doing is what Nazianzus says here. I'm saying what Scripture says. Right. I'm delivering the meaning of it. Um, so sometimes with even even talking at the church level with audiences, I'll say, Matthew 28 says, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let me ask you this, is three there? Am I allowed to count? Or when I say three, that baptize in the name of these three, am I adding something to scripture? Right. Or am I just verbalizing what is not verbalized there? So it's agraphon. Agraphon, yeah, right. not written, but. In another place or maybe nearby, you talk about the difference between the Quaad sensum versus sano. Yeah. Similar thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to explain yeah. that? Yeah, a lot of times, we're, so uh, quad um, uh, sonum would be the, the sound, you know, is the actual verbal marker there. Does it say the sound you're wanting to hear, trinity? Um, whereas quad sensum is more important, is the is the meaning there, is the sense right, right. there, yeah. And, so and if you had similar. to choose, yeah, similar thing. If you had to choose, it's a false dichotomy, I think, right. though it's a useful distinction. If you had to choose, you'd you'd rather preserve the meaning of Scripture than the very words of Scripture, if that were possible. Right. Yeah. Because you want to say more about that? Why? Well, because somebody can recite verse after verse of Scripture and be constructing a heresy and believing a heresy. Mm. Um, and they have the words exactly right. I right. think Jehovah's Witnesses are inerrantists, yeah. aren't they? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> so, good point. So it relates to our mosaic kind of conversation before the famous instance that uh, is it Irenaeus uses yeah. that 
you have all the we all have the same pieces we're all reading the same pieces but it's what picture you put them together in it's the sense of it it's not just the what the pieces are or each tesserae is a word Could yeah that be a yep, that's right that? yeah right. and the other um, great thing about that um, illustration that Irenaeus uses is um, if you have too atomistic a view of what God's propositional revelation is you're going to get it down to word studies or single sentence claims that are taken in isolation from each other right. um, whereas what's what's also important is the overall sense you you need the words you need the sentences but you also need to have a grasp of this holistic sense of how they cohere and that's what the regular fide has historically provided yeah and maybe we would say creeds now and even confessions and then doctr- yep. doctrinal statements. Especially right? if you're understanding those things as an attempt to see what's in Scripture and say it, right? right. Not okay. to impose or legislate on top of it, but to say, basically, I think the Bible is the story of the Father sending the Son and the Spirit. And if you ask, what's the basic meaning of the Bible with regard to who God is, the Trinitarian claim is, well, in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son and the Spirit because in eternity, God is Father, Son, and Spirit that would probably fit on a three by five card and right. that's a kind of statement of the sense of the faith. Right. Even though those are not the exact words of scripture anywhere. You can't go to a Bible verse oh, for that exactly. Right. right. And especially if you're working right. with the Old Testament, which my friend Joe always calls most of the Bible. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're talking about that part right, of it, right. there's something sort of weird about saying, this is all about the Father sending the right. Son and the Spirit. Right, right. Well, I want to I want to come back to that. Yeah, because there that, you do want to stick more to the actual things Isaiah is saying yeah. in the terms he's giving you. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that issue of prosopon and prosopic oh, exegesis, yeah, yeah. right? Okay, so let, let me go back to the book more generally. So if you had to give the postcard version of the thesis of the book oh. and then the goal. The triune God from John Okay, yeah. yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> So the thesis is it's an attempt to restate um, Trinitarian theology with a real focus on the missions of the Son and the Spirit as they are grounded in the eternal procession of the Son and the Spirit from the Father. Okay. So it's, a, it's the, um, the missions procession structure of Trinitarian theology. Okay. So I think that might be helpful if you explain it. I think I know what you mean, but why don't you explain that a little bit more? Oh, give yeah. you more than a postcard now. I'll give you <laughs> yeah. half a page. It's the fact that the, the way our experience of Father, Son, and Spirit in salvation history, um, the way that relates to the eternal being of God um, is through understanding that the Father sent the Son and the Spirit to work out our salvation, um, and that when He did that, that was an externalizing or an activating or an application to us of the eternal being of God as a fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. All right. So it's... um, what it's supposed to do is, is help guide your understanding into a better grasp of how salvation history is an expression of who God is for us. Okay. Yeah. So I think related to that, um, you talk in the beginning and then you work out throughout the book that you intentionally make the argument in a way that maybe we're not always used to, especially within our tradition, that you start with the idea of the processions, then the New Testament, then the Old Testament, mm. right? Oh, and right. That, and that that's an important way for you to make your argument. Will you say more about that, why that is, what that means? Yeah. Implications of that? Yep. So um, I've got a lot of books on the Trinity on my shelf at home. You know, I usually go by number of feet devoted right. to, to that shelf space. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't not get the next book on the Trinity, even right, if I know it's bad. Right. I, I, you know, I buy it anyway and add it to the shelf. Um, and most of them uh, follow this kind of a structure. They, 
they start with the Old Testament, and then they go to the New Testament, and then they do historical development, right. and then they do sort of a constructive or synthesizing statement. Um, I think what they're doing, there's a common sense to that, right? And yep. these are these are some of the good books on the Trinity. Yeah, I'm yeah, totally. About. These yeah, are the these aren't ones. just exploring right. craziness related yeah. to it, right? Yep. Um, I think I understand why they're doing that because you know the New Testament builds on the Old Testament, and then the church tradition interprets Scripture. Right. Uh, the problem is one of the first things you notice is the problem is it's a bad fit for the doctrine of the Trinity because you end up on Genesis one huffing and puffing about, you know, <laughs> divine plurals right, or let right, us make right, or... Right. Majestic um, plurals and, and is yeah, it there? Yeah. Yeah. And it really gives the illusion that yeah. we believe in the triunity of God because of these operations we're doing on the opening chapters of Genesis. When So in fact, I, yeah. backed up, I backed up from that and said, no, in fact, the reason we believe in the triunity of God is the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. That is a, that is a reality fulfilled and revealed in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, you know, promised and prophesied and s the categories that will enable us to understand what it is are all set up in the Old Testament. But the actual thing is, you know, an event in history. Right. Where so the you Son start and the there, Spirit show up. This revelatory event. So you start, you start there. there. Yep. And um, then you're able to go back and though I, I was only able to sketch it, you know, uh, a little bit, you're able to go back to the Old Testament and say, Okay, so a lot of the equipment is here that's going to make the revelation make sense when it arrives. Um, and you can do all kinds of things, you know, the three men who appeared to uh, Abraham under the oaks of Mamre, and, um, who was the man with the sword in his hand who appeared to Joshua, and right. what did Isaiah see, and what did Ezekiel see? Who's in the fiery um, furnace. Who was in the fiery furnace. There are all sorts of things you can do. I just, um, in this book, I try to enforce a kind of hermeneutical honesty about when we are intentionally reading later revelation back onto prior revelation to get the holistic sense of all of scripture. Right. So that, that category of rereadings, one I- Well, I would say, let's just go down that road yeah. then. I thought the discussion of rereading was really well said. I, of course, very sympathetic with that hermeneutically. Um, I wanna say more about that because that's not always, again, what is done currently in modern evangelical hermeneutics, maybe especially I think in the biblical theology kind of influence yeah. part is that it seems like a trajectory from the Old Testament to the New Testament, um, which I think is rooted in a, a very natural reading of the Bible that goes Old Testament, New Testament, mm -hmm. and is also probably energized more than people realize that for, by a kind of historicism. Yeah. Right, I mean, it's this that you, you have to think about things in terms of a historical progression rather than an ontological right. or theological approach, right? In addition to the sort of historicist presuppositions that are going on there, there's a, in hermeneutical theory, there's a kind of a privileging of the imaginary first reading. That's right, yeah. Whether, you know, right. whether it's the original audience, which is a, a, obviously a great thing to tap into and try right, to right. understand the cultural yep. matrix there. But even the sort of this, this imaginary you handed me the book and I read it for the first time and all my understanding came to bear there. When I didn't right. have any, you know, any understanding of the whole text, I was just reading page one and getting yep. it. Right. That's, I don't know if that's the enlightenment or whose who's kind of hermeneutical presupposition that is, but there is a kind of a, an unwarranted presupposition that your clean, pristine first reading 
uh, is the right one. Right. Whereas, you know, well, I mentioned having to read BART multiple times before I grasped yeah. any of it. That yeah. would be one example of, right. I just got to charge my mind with a certain amount of stuff yep. before this will make sense. Yep, yep. I, and I teach in a great books program where we get to reread the same texts over and uh, over as yeah, faculty. Yeah, yeah. And some of the examples I point to, I think in this text are uh, Jane Austen, who, you know, Jane Austen's great to read, but she's especially great to reread. Yeah, that's you know, it's, good. It's, it's funny the first time, but you, sometimes you're 50 pages in before you realize how funny this one character is. Right, right. Well, the right. next time you read it, you know from the beginning. Yeah, Like, yeah. This, this character is cheap, and every line she says is going to be about money. Right. And it turns out Jane Austen was way ahead of you. Yeah. She wrote that character with that characterization yeah, in mind. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. But on your clean, pristine first read, it took you a while to catch up with her. Right, right. And a great piece of literature is one that is not just read, but reread. That's what Lewis talks about. Yep, and that's a good I always measure. Talk, I always talk about with Matthew, it's a similar thing. I teach through Matthew every year. Yeah. And I always say, the best things you're not going to read on your first or 15th reading through Matthew. It's <laughs> then when you get through all the way to the Great Commission and thought yeah. about all these things, then you go back and say, that's what he meant back in chapter 14. Or yeah. that's what he meant back in, and that's a sign of a great, a classic that you're going to yep. keep reading 2,000 years later. You know? Yeah, and this is probably right. especially the case with classical texts, yeah. texts from the ancient world. Yeah, we were just talking about the Aeneid at lunch, yeah. right, the same mm -hmm. way. Yeah. It's also probably the case for modern texts. I think one of the reasons Harry Potter was so runaway popular uh, in the last couple of decades, is it's great to read, but it's apparently really great to reread. It is. I just reread the people who myself. love Harry Potter yeah, don't yeah. read it once. You know? yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't make sense to say that. It's like right. if you ask me, did I read the Bible? And I answered, yeah, I read right. that once. Right. No, that's not what it's about. Right, right. Yeah. I feel that way about kind of the genre of murder mysteries. I mean, uh -huh. they could be. You could reread them over and over yeah. if they've created a really great environment. But a piece of literature that's only about the plot yeah. that then is resolved. I mean, if it's only about the plot, if then it's you just like, well, okay, yeah. you figure out who did it. It's not going to yeah. potentially my, be. My wife's on a regular rotation of waiting long enough in between rereads of Dorothy Sayers mysteries to forget how they actually turned out. Yeah, because she, she wants the she wants all the other stuff. Yeah, she's it, offering it. more than just the plot. Obviously, yeah. Sayers. Is, but it's right, no fun yeah. if you remember immediately who did it. Right. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> good so a few years point. go by, and she can go back and reread all right, the Dorothy right, Sayers. Right. <laughs> It's been a while since I've read Sayers myself. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. good. So okay, actually, so re the final, move, the final yeah, yeah. move is to say, if the Bible is one book by one author, in addition to the other complex layered things that it is, but if, if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture um, and of the unity of the canon, All right. then it's meaningful. I mean, these are heavy theological presuppositions. Yeah. But then it's meaningful to read from Genesis to Revelation and say, I can read Genesis in light of Revelation. Mm -hmm. I, I do need to clarify... It is relevant uh, what an original audience could yeah, have understood. Of course, yeah. It's relevant to do uh, the whole historical, grammatical. And author owns yep, any meaning yep. matters, yeah. That is a tether right. that keeps you yep. uh, on reality. Yep, yep. Uh, on the other hand, there's it's not unorthodox to say, well, there's a, there's a serpent early in Genesis, and then 65 books later, I find out it's the devil. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, that's a, it's a true statement of biblical theology. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I read Genesis with that in mind, then you know you could you could set out a whole set of rules about the ethics of rereading. For instance, I well, think that's that, what I was kind of yeah. interested in. I yeah, think I play in here yeah. when I read Genesis one. Should I think in the beginning the Trinity created the heavens and the earth? And what's the answer? Or should I think in the beginning God the Father created the heavens and the earth through the Son? Or should I think, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the answer is I think you got to give you got to privilege the original text. You know what it what it says. Um, and then you've got to specify 
what you're trying to draw out of the subsequent revelation by offering your paraphrase. Mm-hmm. And it's a paraphrase on top of what's there. You don't erase Genesis 1-1 as it's written and right, replace right. it with the Trinitarian right, right, reading. Right. You build, you layer it on top. Yeah, that's good. And, that, and so, yeah, that's a great connection then to, to make to the idea that doing theology is metaphrasing or mm-hmm. translating. Yeah. And so you still honor Holy Scripture and its words and how they run and what they say, including in their historical context, but you also yeah. recognize that a theological reading of the Bible is going to be a layer on top of that. Right. And, that. and it's not and an they're improvement. not identical to each other. It's not an improvement either. Right, right. right? Yeah. That's yeah. A, yeah, a besetting that. sin is to think that Right. <laughs> the Bible's nice and all, but it's so untidy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, systematic theologians can fix that right, for right, you. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually yeah. part of what that quote that I was going to read is something about. It's not that it was Scripture did it not well or yeah. something, but yeah. Yeah. So what you just described sounds to me um, similar to Child's argument about, Brevard Child's argument about a multi-layered reading of scripture, mm. both, you know, he does it in his own sort of more historical critical environment, you know, you get these two levels, but still the idea that you, you care about and you honor the per se voice of scripture, particularly on Child's insights on the Old Testament, that the witness of the Elder Testament, as sites would call it now, yeah. is still there. We don't erase it with a Christian reading, right. but we also have a two testament canon. Yes. Right, that's, this is what I got from Childhood Sites. Yeah. I, I saw a couple footnotes with sites in it, but uh-huh. I wondered if you have any interaction with that. or. Yeah, uh, yep, I, I agree with that. And it's a site who uses the language of discrete witness. Yep. So, you know, when you're reading Isaiah, it's not just that you find in it what you got from Matthew because you brought it from Matthew yep, and put it yep. there. Um, it's that you're also, you know, the later categories help energize a reading of the earlier texts that still bears its discrete witness. Right, right. Yeah. All right, well, continuing on this Old Testament discussion, this uh, presuponic versus Christophanic. You want to say something oh, about yeah. that? That, that yeah. was a fascinating discussion as well. Can you define what those are and what your argument is there? Yeah. Um, so this presoponic um, reading, you know, it's this reading technique where you are construing a text by figuring out just who is talking. Um, Whose face, right? That's, yeah, oh, yeah, right? yeah. That, face or person. person. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So it means that there are um, places where um, Old Testament authors are, um, uh, they're describing a situation and there's a speaker present which when a later reader comes back to identify what's going on in the text, they're gonna have to say, here's who's speaking here, here's who's speaking there. Um, And often you get uh, the the father speaking to the son, the son speaking to the father. Um, There are are texts that you can go back to and construe that way. I mean, I take the opening of Mark to be that, right? The um, prepare the way, that that dialogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And is that one that historically the fathers would have seen as a yeah. Persephonic kind mm-hmm. of thing. Okay. Yeah, Hillary of Poitiers especially is just really great at this. Yeah. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not an overall rule that you can apply to everything. There are certain kinds of literature that lend themselves to Persephonic reading. Okay. Um, so probably everyone's experienced reading the Song of Songs and realizing I can't even make sense of this at a fundamental level until I figure out who's Unless talking. Unless you're a teenage boy. Right. That's right. But even then there are some lines where you, you got to know who's talking. Right. <laughs> um, so places like that, and the Psalms, of course, are very rich. There are some modes of prophetic utterance that yeah. switch speakers rapidly. And it makes yeah. me think of um, 
at the end of the series of questions when Jesus' authority is being questioned in Matthew, where he then ends it with, I think it's Psalm 110, is it, where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yeah. And that, and Jesus raises like, who's talking? Yeah. Who, who's That's talking the, here? Yep. That's interesting. <laughs> That's the prosopotic yep. question, yeah. who's talking? Yeah. And that probably is the, the crucial example. I mean, the, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, uh, is is the most frequently uh, occurring Old Testament text in the yeah. New Testament. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And it's at, in every author from every strata, yeah. you know, it's yeah, just yeah. there. Interesting. Yeah. So how does that contrast though? That So that mode of reading, what does that do for us? And how does it contrast with maybe how alternative way, Christophanic or something, way of reading the Old Testament yeah. from a Christian perspective? Oh, right, right. Because that's um, what you're kind of getting at, right? Yeah, and so in particular, the word Christophany is a, a pretty recent coinage, sort of surprising, huh. right? Um, um, yeah, so for one thing, it gets you the interpersonal thing. Okay. And so, I mean, here, here's the really interesting thing about prosopotic reading. Why do we say there are three prosopa in the Trinity? Well, you know, so we know Father, Son, and Spirit, but we're not given a group noun to say what that's mm. three of. So it's not just that the word Trinity is not in the New Testament. Yeah. The, the word person is not there huh. in the sense we're using right, it here. Right, right, um, So you gotta come up with something. There's some pretty good scholarship that indicates the reason we picked that word, prosopon, uh, you know, which then it becomes persona or hypostasis gets used in a kind of an interchangeable okay. way. Um, the reason we picked that is because of this mode of reading. Huh. To say who's talking to who, well, it's a person. Um, and there's maybe not a lot of thick metaphysics behind that. The, original choice of that word. Got it. it became thicker yeah. as the time yeah. went on, right? Uh, yeah. So um, Christophanes, um, as, a, as a strategy for sort of spotting the Trinity in the Old Testament, yeah. um, I think there's some room for that. You know, I don't do a full discussion of it here, um, but I, I do say a kind of a, a no to that Christophany reading of, of the because. Old Testament. Um, because it's a, it's a way of rereading the Old Testament and finding New Testament realities in it that I think is just under-supported. Um, you, can, you can make more sense of it without having to do that. And so again, what would be the alternative? What do you do instead? How would you explain to a Christian what it means to Christianly read the Old Testament from a Trinity perspective? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I think it's really important to um, be clear about what's unclear. I, I think that okay. one of the things you want to state about the Old Testament is that um, there were things that were true about God, which God was not in the business of revealing at that time. Okay. So um, I think I pick up this word adumbration in the yes, book. Yes, you do. Um, uh, which is a perfectly good word. Yeah, you know, I liked it's it. It's been around yeah. a long time. It's I didn't know what it the, meant. You defined it according to its Latin thing, which made sense. Yeah. You said it, right? To yep. Sh shadowing forth. Adumbra, to shadow forth. Right. It's a fine word. It's just fallen out of usage on that shelf of Trinity books I've got, it's in a lot of them. Huh. It's for some reason it's this word, I've heard, I heard someone say one time, you only hear the word fissiparous with reference to Protestant schismatics. Uh -huh. Right, like, yeah, it's a fine word, but for some reason it's right. a cliche it or there. a convention. Yeah, yeah, right, it gets, right. Adumbration just gets picked up when people say, oh yes, the Trinity in the Old Testament, it is adumbrated there. Okay. There are many adumbrations. Well, I, that's a true statement, I'm fine with that. And what that means is when we point to the Trinity in the Old Testament, we need to point both 
to what we're seeing of it and to the shadow. Okay. The goal is not to dispel the shadow because then see. the danger is going to be there. Got it. You're going to create the optical illusion that reading forward, everybody always knew that that yeah, was yeah. Christ there. Right, right. When in fact, um, you know, it's a strong commitment to progressive revelation to say, oh, later on, it came to be revealed that back there that had been the sun. I think you say always true, hidden, now revealed. There's yeah. kind of three yeah. stages. Yeah. Right? And that's, um, I also tie that into the biblical theological structure of the idea of mystery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A mystery is it's something that's there, but it's behind the curtain. Yep. Yep. Unseeable, so. and it requires a reading backwards again. Yeah. 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 Okay. I was wondering if you have run across this um, book in Matthean studies. I understand if you haven't, and I don't know how to pronounce the guy's last name. It's Joshua Lime or Lame, L-E-I-M. But it's on, um, it made me think of your book, when I was reading your book, it made me think of it because it's a great little argument about divine filiation within Matthew through the idea of worship. So the, so the basic argument is that um, Matthew changes our theological grammar to include the Son within what theos means, mm. what, what God means. And he does that primarily through the idea of worship, proskuneo, so that God alone, central to monotheism, is that God alone is worthy of worship. Jesus himself affirms that um, by in his temptation to say, you should worship the Lord your God only. And then Matthew proceeds to include Jesus in the objects of worship mm. throughout his grant, or throughout his, his story, including, interestingly, um, most importantly in chapter 14, but it's also there in the Great Commission, where in chapter 14, after he walks on water and reveals himself, then they bow down and worship him. And so oh. the point is you have simultaneously a commitment to a kind of radical monotheism that only God is to be worshipped, and yet Jesus is then included in, in this worship. Therefore, theos, the theological grammar has changed, so the theos includes divine Father and Son. Yeah. So it's very, I found it a great book and super helpful for me to think about. I'm writing a essay on the Trinity in Matthew for a, a book. Oh, Maybe yeah. Maybe you're involved too, I don't uh -huh. know, um, in it. And uh, anyways, just didn't know yeah. if you're familiar with that book. I've or heard a summary of the argument, yeah, and um, I think I... I think I saw it at a, at a dissertation level. It's, yeah, it's it was a dissertation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. You know what I like? What I really like about that and find useful is um, if you do a biblical theology of what a son of God is, there's a there's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament theology okay. about son of God. All right. So sometimes anti-Trinitarians will argue son of God means not God. And you know there are lots of places in the Old Testament you can point to that. Right, and say, right. Oh look, the son of David is the son of God, right. but he's not God. Um, the problem is, I think that when you turn that canonical hinge, what, what's new in the New Testament is, well, new rules because of what happened with Jesus. We, mm. we now know that Son of God can also mean uh, a claim to divinity. Right, right. Um, and I understand all the ways in which it doesn't necessarily mean that yep, as a bit yep. of Old Testament theology. But that doesn't argue against it is the point. Just because it doesn't necessarily mean it, if right. the New Testament testifies to that, then that is what it means. Right. Yeah. So it's one thing for me right. to assert, yes, but the New Testament redefines it with authority. Yeah. It's it's more helpful to say, oh, actually, in the book of Matthew, you can track it this yeah. way. Yeah. You, can, you can see the nuts and bolts. And, it, and it, what made me think of it is you start in your book, we didn't talk about this, with the necessity of the attunement to 
praise and worship in doing our theological task. Yeah. And that's what I thought was interesting too. Because it's a worship argument. argument. Yeah, yeah. It centers on, on proskuneo and what it means to worship, which is really obviously central to what it means to be a monotheist. Right. A Judeo-Christian monotheist is that yeah. God alone is worthy of worship. Uh, let me pull up a level and say, as a professor theologian, what would you want to say to other professors, say New Testament, Old Testament, church history, but we'll talk biblical studies in particular, like what um, what would you want me to know from your world that would help me do my job better? I think in a lot of ways, um, a, a big thing happening now is kind of a, a rehabilitation of what some people call classical theism. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's not even really a good name for it, but if you if you read broadly through the centuries of Christian theology, this is all over the place until fairly recently. Mm. Um, a kind of a high, even austere doctrine of God, which is easier to state philosophically than to state narratively. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of times biblical studies um, can be kind of hobbled by the fact that its primary materials are yep. narrative and... Um, historically located and culturally identifiable. Um, and, and we're stuck on this language issue yeah. with any kind of biblicism. Isn't that related? That if it's yeah. not in the Bible's language, sometimes we feel like we can't say it or something yeah. within yeah. biblical studies, yeah. right? So then we're wide open to this old-fashioned um, uh, liberal analysis of Hellenization. Yep. Right, which is to say, oh no, you got Greek ideas all over your yep. pure, pristine, and that biblical categories. Right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, which I don't agree with. Right, right, right. right so yeah. it's one of those things where okay, there's an element of truth to that. That of course, one of the ways in which biblical ideas get translated is yep. for you know broad transmission in the Hellenistic world. Sure, um, but to use that as an explanation to explain away uh, a high doctrine of God. Um, I, I just think it'd be valuable. And there's oh, yeah. a couple of envelopes. We're kind of running thin on them. I've okay, got every, I got, you only got You only got two choices, so you just All choose right. one of those. All right, I'm going to go with green. And uh, you you commit to answer the question. I'll answer the question, too. I have no idea okay. what's in there. All right. Well, how did they get over here if you don't know what's well, in Well, I mean, originally a former version of myself. Oh, I got gotcha. I knew what was in them, but... Okay. On a scale of 1 to 10, how funny would you say you are? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I Maybe, like seven or eight um the thing about humor with me is it's uh it's genetic i think i got it from my dad okay so when i'm people tell me i'm a funny public speaker okay. um and i think i have a good sense of timing um but i never plan i don't think right. i've ever written down a joke right. you know in a manuscript um uh i i have to work the things i have to work hard on as a speaker are um clarity um my natural strengths are i illustrate really well I, I can make uh, sometimes I'll be five illustrations down the line brilliant illustrations clear penetrating right. compelling <laughs> memorable but I never stated what I was illustrating <laughs> and so part of the audience is always just kind of locked right. out like what would great you just, illustrate what, what is your was thesis? this guy an artist yeah. <laughs> what's your thesis <laughs> so um, my prep time is always on the side of clarity similarly it's never on the side of humor I'm never thinking like right. then I need a funny section right right it just naturally but it just comes, comes. yeah right. okay yeah. Very good. I haven't really heard you public speak, so oh, yeah. I'll let you know if that's seven okay. or eight's fair. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I'd actually probably give myself a seven or eight myself. Okay. Um, All right. But I, I find a lot of things very funny and then share those with other people, not planned either. I mean, I just yeah. rejoice, especially in language and 
how language plays. And so I would r rate how much I enjoy my own humor as an eight or nine. Now, whether other people enjoy <laughs> it right. that much yeah. as well, but it seems to be. It's, well, it's been great, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to all of our social media and especially our YouTube channel. We also have a Patreon account if you want to support us that way. Thanks again. We'll see you on the road.